Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So I'm just going to take 20 minutes to talk about the link. There's so much I would love to talk about here, and I'm sorry um, if it doesn't cover everything you want, but we just have to kind of um, get through some some basic things here. But I, I would... I would have you think about the case that Huda just presented in the setting of if you didn't know what that CAT scan showed and you saw the hemodynamics and the symptoms, et cetera, you would probably be offering or considering pH-directed therapy. And the question is, you know, what is it about having lung disease that gives us pause and should we be pausing at all and when should we pause and when should we not pause? That's really the key question in front of us. So just to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about here, we're talking about group 3 pH there at the top with the arrow. We're talking about pH associated with enough lung disease that you're going to get worried uh, that the lungs are playing a role as well. And by that, I mean that in most PAH studies that have been done to date, mild lung disease has been included. Mild fibrosis was always included as part of the inclusion criteria. So the idea that any fibrosis is is, was never included in our standard group 1 PAH studies is just simply not true. So we're really talking about moderate to severe fibrosis and how do we really define that, uh, you know, or, or emphysema for that matter, or CPFE. That's kind of what we'll talk, get a little bit into. So these are the discussion points, you know, a little bit about a background of pH complicating COPD and pulmonary fibrosis and really sh- how should we target group 3 PAH. A little bit about the vascular pathology, some gas exchange stuff. Um, looking at circulatory limitation. That's really what you're interested in, right? You're really interested in treating the patients who are circulatorily limited, not ventilatorily limited. And a clinical phenotype, perhaps, will suggest one for where PAH-targeted therapy uh, may work in patients who... And I'm going to focus more on pulmonary fibrosis, and I'll tell you why in the next slide. It's because COPD and pulmonary hypertension is a very interesting, and I would say... If you're looking at pure COPD, not CPFE, combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema, COPD and the pH associated with that is very slow to evolve and, and rarely is severe. So the slow natural history, this, I have had the references there for you, but you can see it moves very, very slowly over a five or seven year period in its natural history. And if you look at the National Emphysema Treatment Trial, um, Mild to, the, there was very only mild to moderate pH in severe COPD. These are people who had FEV1s of less than 35%. Um, and in fact, only 5% of that cohort actually had mean PA pressures of 35 or higher. So severe, severe pulmonary hypertension in the setting of severe emphysema is uncommon. Um, and that's, I think, the main point. So I'm going to leave COPD out of this for a moment and also leave CPFE out of this because I think the heterogeneity there is complicated and just, just now being unraveled. So we're just kind of going to interstitial lung disease, which is, no, <laughs> which is also extremely heterogeneous, uh, I think probably more so perhaps than COPD as we know it today. So the etiology of interstitial lung disease or pulmonary fibrosis, its natural history for each one, the risk for pulmonary hypertension in each of those categories, and the subsequent natural history of that pH are all completely different for each of the type of interstitial lung diseases that we're talking about. You guys have probably seen this picture before, diffuse parenchymal lung disease. Again, we determine this by multidisciplinary discussion, right? You have a pulmonologist, a pathologist, a radiologist at a lot of the academic institutions. You have the known causes there on your, uh, on your left, right? Uh, collagen vascular diseases, drugs like amiodarone. 
You have um, the, interstitial, the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias, where IPF is the most common in the middle there. You have granulomatous lung diseases, uh, such as sarcoidosis, um, and you have other sort of rare forms like LAM and, and eosinophilic granuloma. So the biggest one we're seeing is IPF, and then you have all the other idiopathic interstitial pneumonias. But complicating all this is you have interstitial pneumonia with autoimmune features, right? So this is now a defined entity. This is the idea of people who have ILD who don't have an overt rheumatologic disease, but they have features of autoimmune disease. So this is characterized now, and there's criteria for this. You also have um, the concept that most of the time collagen vascular diseases have been excluded in the PAH studies that we've done, except for the more recent increased study. And also sarcoidosis is excluded. And on top of all that, you have CPFE. So you have fibrosis, comp- and, you, know, you have some form of emphysema, all different kinds, paraseptal, central lobular, mild, moderate, severe, complicating all the interstitial lung diseases that we see. So very heterogeneous and difficult to sort of quantify. Uh, if you can predict the pH from the imaging here, you can imagine it looked like just the case that Huda presented, bad fibrosis, actually horrible fibrosis. Uh, actually, Huda's case had horrible fibrosis too. If you, can, if you look at this uh, you, you know, CAT scan, you can't predict what the PA pressure is. And this person ended up having normal pulmonary pressures at the time of lung transplantation with an FVC of 37%. If you looked at Huda's case and I asked you, oh, what do you think this patient's PA pressures are? I think you'd have a hard time sort of knowing what it was just looking at the imaging. The same way you'd have a hard time knowing if someone with bad fibrosis is on two liters of oxygen or eight liters of oxygen just by looking at a CAT scan. So here are some of the baseline factors that influence survival, the diffusing capacity, the saturation at rest and on exertion, as you might imagine, are, are factors that definitely contribute um, to our understanding of, of uh, the, the, um, the uh, survival of patients who have IPF. And I, I, we're focusing on IPF because that's where most of the data, most of the data is. Um, so is pH a rational target for therapy in the setting of fibrosis? Well, there's no question that pH, as Rich brought up, Dr. Chanik brought up earlier, you know, pulmonary hypertension, you know, with a PVR of, you know, greater than two may be associated with mortality, but whether it's the cause of mortality is a whole other, you know, discussion. So there's no question that pulmonary hypertension complicating any parenchymal lung disease, whether you're talking about sarcoid, any type of fibrosis, any type of emphysema, any lung disease you can think of, a, cor- a correlate with pH is always going to be, always going to have a worse fibro- uh, uh, survival, worse prognosis. But the question is, should we be targeting that for therapy? Um, and you can see here we have right heart cath data. These, this is always in the setting of a lung transplant um, possible, you know, a patient who's being prepared for lung transplant. Otherwise, we don't have homogenous right heart cath data in these patients, right? So there's no question that if you look at all this, um, pH is a risk factor for death and mortality in patients with any type of fibrosis. At the bottom there, you can see there's a lot of studies recently looking at cutoffs for pulmonary vascular resistance, not using mean PA pressure much anymore, but looking at PVR as a cutoff. So whether it's 6.23 or 6 wood units or 8 wood units, there are more recent papers with 5 wood units. Basically, when you get up to 5 to 8, you're talking about an increased risk of death, which is in, within that cohort of advanced um, pulmonary fibrosis cases. And that, 
that's why pulmonary hypertension is considered a reason to transplant someone or certainly a reason to refer someone for transplant. So the current guidelines for lung transplant for IPF are like if you have histologic or radiographic evidence of UIP and one or more of the following, diffusive capacity that's less than 40%, 35%, somewhere in that area, a decline in FEC of 10% or more over a six-month period, any type of pulmonary hypertension, and a saturation that's less than or equal to 80 80%. Basically, exertional desaturation. And other types of pulmonary fibrosis in the guidelines share same, similar recommendations. So just changing gears to the vascular pathology. So this is just in a nutshell. You would think, and, and we know about PAH affecting small arterioles. In, in fibrosis, whether you look at scleroderma, ILD, or whether you look at idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, any form of fibrosis, um, and this is, of course, mostly based on explanted lung tissue, the pathology is homogenous in the areas of dense fibrosis. So basically, you can't really see much in those areas in terms of what's veins, what's arteries, what's going on. But really where you see the differences is actually in the more preserved, architecturally preserved areas of lung. There's a pretty significant venopathy. And in many of those cases, there's capillary duplication or what we call you know, PCH, a pulmonary capillary hemangiomatosis type of duplication of the endothelial cells. So you really see a panvasculopathy. The arteries, the veins, and the capillaries are affected. In this particular study, there was no association between venular occlusion and the mean PA pressure. But the point is there's a panvasculopathy, which is very different from our group 1 PAH patients and gives people pause about treating these patients because they see it pathologically as a PVOD, PCH-like spectrum of disease. So this panvasculopathy is similar to the, what we see in scleroderma PAH without fibrosis. You actually off, often see a panvasculopathy in our scleroderma patients. You might be shocked to hear this in patients who have PAH only, no ILD or minimal ILD. Um, but it is readily distinguishable from group 1 PAH. In the interest of time, I'll just move forward here. So gas exchange, this is a complicated topic and really is fun to think about. But I'll leave you with some general principles. So if you look at patients who have pulmonary fibrosis, and then compare, this is pulmonary fibrosis, no pulmonary hypertension, okay? And compare them and just look at their, what they do at rest and what they do on exertion, right? Their gas exchange. And compare them to PAH patients, group one PAH patients, right? Let's look at what these patients do at rest and on exertion. And again, without getting too much into the details, the point is that both of these conditions have fairly preserved VQ spectrums. Um, if you look at their ventilation perfusion, um, you know, distribution in terms of um, how abnormal it is, they're fairly preserved at rest. And during exercise, you can imagine the, the pulmonary fibrosis patient has a, a shift in the amount of diffusion abnormality. And the PAH patient has also a shift where you have more of a hypoxemia or a gas exchange issue really driven by the low mixed venous oxygen that comes around due to the relatively poor cardiac output. At least this is the theory. Um, And that hypoxemia gets augmented for a given alveolar PaO2, so P big AO2, which which really augments the vulnerability of the oxygen exchange issue to diffusion. And this is, this is work by Peter Wagner, and if you go back to sort of you know, the physiology principles here. So you can imagine if you take a fibrosis patient and mix it with pulmonary hypertension and you combine the two phenotypes, you're going to get a very, um, a very perturbed situation, which is almost unpredictable depending on where the fibrosis is and how it interacts with the pulmonary vascular changes. There's also some data showing that hypoxic vasoconstriction may be attenuated, in other words, it doesn't work 
in patients who have worsening pH with fibrosis. That's also interesting, and there's some great papers on this done back in the uh, 70s and 80s. So one of the fears that we have is making people oxygenate worse, worsening their shunt, making them VQ, making their VQ spectrum bad, right, worse. This has been what's been propagated in the literature, and it's really based on acute administration studies looking at something called the multiple inert gas elimination technique. This is a technique that was used to sort of look at the VQ spectrum, how the ventilation and perfusion match with each other. It's a study, it's a study tool. It's, not a, it's a research tool. But the bottom line is the, the Germans, uh, Dr. Gofrani, published this article back in the early 2000s looking at IPF patients and gave them epiprostanol, compared it to a single dose of sildenafil, and then compared it to inhaled nitric oxide. And this was all acute administration. So these were fibrosis patients who had significant pulmonary hypertension, and it was significant. And what they found was that there was an increased shunt when they gave epiprostanol, a very significant increase in shunt, about a 16% increase in the shunt fraction. Um, interestingly enough, this led to the concept of the possibility of hypoxemia, and in that case, we should really not be using parenteral prostacyclines in this population, hence the push to give inhaled prostacyclines, etc., but really, the theory was that, hey, treating these patients in, with any pH drug has the capacity to cause gas exchange abnormalities. That's where this came from. I just want to make sure you understand, in this acute administration study, they actually gave EPO in very, very rapidly increasing doses. They started at 2 nanograms per kilogram per minute and went up every 15 minutes by 2. So it was a rapid uptitration to the point where they either had hypotension, thoracic oppression, nausea, vomiting, etc. So they went to symptom limitation. So that probably has something to do with the physiology they produced. But what we've really seen in clinical trials, whether it's, whether it's pulmonary fibrosis without pH, where you're using a pH drug as an antifibrotic, or whether you're using, doing, looking at pulmonary fibrosis with established pulmonary hypertension, in general, uh, the PaO2s, when they were checked, or the saturations of oxygen, are not affected, or only marginally affected, in the chronic administration of pH drugs in this group of patients um, and that's the bottom line. We've actually never seen the hypoxemia that everyone's worried about in chronic administration studies. And there's a whole list of studies there you can see on the left. Those include drugs like bosentin, um, ambrosentin, masatentin, sildenafil, riosiguat, triprostanil. Um, they're all there. Um, so all these studies, all these drugs have been looked at. Now, whether they work or not, that's a whole other story. The whole point is gas exchange is not clearly affected by these drugs. So just shifting gears to this concept of the group 3 pH circulatory limitation, right? So if you have a patient who has fibrosis, COPD, what's some type of preclinical lung disease, and they have really bad pH, you're asking yourself, is this patient limited by their ventilatory limitation or are they limited by their pH, i.e. circulatory limitation? And that's really the question that's in front of you, right? So how do you tease that out? Well, this is, of course, this is all goes back to CPET and cardiopulmonary exercise testing and understanding what these patients do on exertion, right? So in the clinic, we try to see if they're hypoxemic when they walk around. We try to see how symptomatic they are. We try to get a feel for what, what's going on. But the bottom line is you really want to figure out whether they're, whether they're ventilatorily limited here or whether they're circulatorily limited. And that's really the name of the game. And it's obviously easier said than done. But the point is there's some data on this. The circulatory limitation, which we see in idiopathic PAH, is a feature of pulmonary hypertension complicating pulmonary fibrosis. But it's got to be enough pulmonary hypertension. 
right? It can't be just the mild stuff, right? How much pulmonary hypertension do you need before you are, or you are limited by, by the pulmonary hypertension, i.e. circulatory limitation, as opposed to the ventilatory limitation? And just to cut to the chase here at the bottom, you can see there that there is a strong correlation with ventilatory equivalent for CO2, right, at the anaerobic threshold. And then the people have tried to look at slope cutoffs for, you know, percent predicteds in terms of trying to understand how CPET sort of helps us determine if someone is circulatorily limited. The caveat to all this is that the people that have been studied with CPET to date who have parenchymal lung disease are those who are not very hypoxic because the people we've studied on, on the CPET machine are not the typical patients that we're seeing in real life, right? They tend to be on quite a bit of oxygen in real life. And to do a CPET, you have to do it essentially on room air most of the time, but you can supplement some low level of oxygen, generally speaking, although apparently there are now, um, uh, you know, uh, there's hardware that we can use to actually provide people enough oxygen or lots of oxygen, let's say, and actually do a CPET. And we're just starting to get into that at UCLA. But there's a whole literature here we need to make for these patients who are actually in real life have significant pulmonary fibrosis and significant pulmonary hypertension because those are the people that actually tend to be very hypoxic and the ones we actually haven't even studied yet. So more to come on that. So what can we learn from the group three pH experience in the world today? Well, with age, these patients are generally in their 60s, okay? Um, they're very hemodynamically perturbed. You can see their mean PA pressures there, 41, 37, 47, et cetera. They look just like your typical PAH patient. Not as bad, but pretty much like 80% of the bad hemodynamics. They have um, forced vital capacities, usually in the 60s. Um, they have variable definitions, right? We haven't decided how to define the fibrosis yet? Should it be based on a PFT parameter? Should it be based on the CT scan? Should it be based on a combination thereof? Every registry has used a different approach. But what we do know for all these people is that the survival is awful. Whether you're looking at ILD all-comers, CTD ILD, et cetera, you're talking about the worst survival out of all the WHO group pH populations that we, that we see. Group three has the worst survival. And the last point I'll get into here is the clinical phenotype. So what should we target? So who should we be treating? Again, this is a work in progress. You guys are aware of the increased study. Um, but we did a study here looking at parenteral triprostanil in patients who were being prepared for lung transplant. Um, these patients had uh, mean PA pressures greater than 35. They had pulmonary vascular resistances of greater than three. Uh, most of them were um, on the order of... Uh, over six wood units, um, and they had baseline RV dysfunction on their echocardiogram. This was a positive study in the sense that there was no worsening of hypoxemia. All of them improved significantly with their hemodynamics, and they all improved on the SF36, on the physical component. They all improved RV function by echo, which I'll show you in a second. They all improved six-minute walk distance, and they all improved brain natriuretic peptides. So there was a homogenous response to this parenteral delivery of a prostacycline. So you guys remember that the, you may remember the sildenafil IPF study published in the New England Journal many years ago to look at sildenafil for IPF and likely pH. They didn't actually cap those patients. They all had diffusing capacities that were low. They were proposed to likely have pH. It was a negative study, but what they found was that patients with RV, when they went back and looked at a, a, a post hoc analysis, the patients with RV systolic dysfunction on the echo who got sildenafil had a preserved or a better six-minute walk than those and quality of life than those compared to placebo. 
Okay, so that was a piece of information. And then this is our study, the Triprosno study I just mentioned. This was blindly reviewed echoes pre and post uh, by Paul Forfia, who was at Temple at the time. And he looked at RV and diastolic areas, systolic eccentricity index, and TAPSI for all the echoes for those 15 patients. And there were statistically significant improvements in all those variables. So maybe RV dysfunction is important when we're considering on an echo. It may be important to who will respond to therapy and who won't. I'm not going to spend too much time on the inhaled triprosanol study, but this is now an FDA-approved medication. It's the only FDA-approved medication for group 3 pH. And um, let me just step aside here. The one thing about this study, which you have to remember, is that it included patients who had connective tissue disease with ILD. Before that, no one had ever included this group of patients in the fibrosis population that was being studied. It was a quarter of the cohort, and they had a very brilliant response. So it was IPF that had a nice response. It was CTD, connective tissue disease, most of which is systemic sclerosis, and ILD that had a nice response. The last group was CPFE, combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema. They had more of a modest response. Um, In the interest of time, I'll tell you that we've also looked at inhaled nitric oxide, Um, looking at it ambulatory in an outpatient setting in IPF and echocardiographic pH. Uh, Again, we're running out of time, but I'll just tell you here that this study, the phase three study, just read out recently uh, for ambulatory inhaled nitric oxide in pulmonary fibrosis with presumed pH based on probability on echocardiography. This was a negative phase three study, which just read out in the third quarter of 2023. Okay, so that's important to realize. And there's also important to realize that sildenafil has been looked at either as monotherapy in addition to antifibrotic therapy for fibrosis and pH. All these trials have been negative. I'll leave you with this. So if you can think about the competing risks for morbidity and mortality, um, and you can see here on the left of your screen, right, ILD is the primary determinant of outcomes at the top there, right? So you can see over time on the x-axis. And then you can see at some point someone develops pH. And then at some point, maybe pH becomes the primary determinant of the outcome. You can see on the y-axis, there's decreasing FVC, diffusing capacity, six-minute walk distance, hypoxemia. On On the axis on the right, you can see there's increasing mean pH pressure, increasing PVR, decreasing RV function. And you can see that when you... There's also, with ILD, we have these unanticipated insults, right? We have people who acutely exacerbate. The natural history is, you know, variable. There's infections. There's comorbidities. There's age. And that can take a patient out, right? My point here was that when you design a clinical trial, when you design a clinical trial here, what you want is you want, you want your clinical course to be very stable, right? If you introduce a pH drug here, you don't want the clinical course of the patient to be one of a temporal decline in their pulmonary fibrosis. Otherwise, you'd be competing with the underlying condition that they have. You want a stable pulmonary fibrosis course. Um, And you see that, particularly in CTD-ILD. CTD-ILD tends to be a very much more stable course. Long-term prognosis is much better than IPF. So in general, when we study fibrosis and we're trying to teach or use a pH drug to treat their to treat the pH that they develop. In clinical trials, we really want to use a a pulmonary fibrosis phenotype, which is much more stable and much more predictable. And that's why I think CTD-ILD lends itself to that. So with that, I'm going to stop and just go through conclusions. It's difficult to clinically 
to clinically predict pH complicating pulmonary fibrosis, there's a ton of heterogeneity in the types of fibrosis we see and how they act naturally and how they interact with pH. The pathology is very different from group 1 PAH. And while there may be VQ mismatch acutely when we administer drugs like parenteral prostacycline, hypoxemia and chronic administration in pH-targeted therapies in pulmonary fibrosis is not a thing. It's not predictable hypoxemia. Inhaled triprostanol is the only FDA-approved medication for group 3 pH. The appropriate phenotype to treat, in my opinion, um, and likely respond to pH-targeted therapy is one that's circulatorily limited and may include advanced pulmonary hemodynamics, echocardiographic evidence for RV dysfunction, and a baseline CPET if we can get to, get to understanding these people a little bit better when they're hypoxemic, similar to what we see in group 1 PAH. We've looked at this with parenteral triprostanol and had some nice, nice responses, and both in regular all-comers with fibrosis as well as scleroderma, systemic sclerosis-associated pulmonary fibrosis. The future clinical trial design should include the advanced pH phenotype, measures of RV dysfunction. I think we have to focus more on echo pre and post um, since we do it all the time. And we should really have a stable pulmonary fibrosis phenotype that we study. We should generally avoid pH therapy in older patients with IPF and what a lot of whom have mild what we call reactive pH. They don't have RV dysfunction. They're not circulatorily limited. Um, failures in future clinical studies in pulmonary fibrosis with pH should really be due to the fact that we're using the wrong drug and should, stop be, and should not be due, due to improper or inadequate clinical design. So with that, I'll stop. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.